Today's episode is brought to you by Monster. Find employees who work as hard as you at monster.com slash hiring. Monster, find better. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. Uh, before the show starts, this is not an ad. I, I, I'm really excited that today's guest is Karin Kusama. And that's really important to me that I'm excited. As this podcast has, has grown, I've really hewed hard to this idea that I'm only going to have people on who I really want to talk to who I really want to have a conversation with, um, whether I want to interview them or talk to them or exchange ideas. It's someone whose work or life is super engaging to me. It's the only way that I can make it engaging to you or make it better than just hearing, uh, reading their book or listening to their album or watching them in movies. And I'm finding that the pressures of doing the show every week sometimes make me consider booking people who might be awesome, incredibly talented, but whose work or life doesn't really resonate with me in a way that I can put in the time and research to have these conversations. And I respect you, the people who listen regularly, the people who've been listening since Grantland or who picked it up from Slate and subscribe at iTunes.com slash the moment. And so there may be some weeks uh, coming up that... I don't have a, a, a new guest. We don't post an episode. And I hope you'll bear with that. And so you might get an episode every two weeks. You might get an episode every three weeks. There might be three weeks in a row where you get an episode. But know that the reason for that is, uh, as Jason, my producer, and I have talked about, we just won't compromise the essential vision of the show. And, and if that means some of you pick up other shows and don't have time, that'll make me sad for real because I love having this conversation with everybody. But I would rather that than to deliver anything that is, uh, in my mind, less than um, an authentic conversation that I care deeply about. So uh, enjoy this conversation with Karen Kusama. She uh, certainly fits the bill, as you'll hear from my the fawning tone uh, I take with her. And I'll see you soon after this one. If you want to talk about this, feel free to email me, themomentbk at gmail.com, or reach out to me on Twitter or some other social media sphere. All right, enjoy the show. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a special show because my guest today is not only a, a world-class filmmaker, but she's someone I consider a friend, a collaborator, and... Um, Really, someone who I've uh, looked up to for a long time. It's uh, Karin Kusama. Some of her movies are uh, Girl Fight, Jennifer's Body, and her new film, The Invitation. I don't want to say too much about it <laughs> because I don't really know what you can say right. without spoiling it. It's a tough one. But I would say if you are a fan of um, the one movie I keep kept thinking of um, is Bound, the mm -hmm. Wachowskis sister's first movie. I remember watching Bound and I had to stand in the back of the theater because mm -hmm. I was, it was so tense and mm -hmm. I couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt the same thing watching, mm -hmm. watching your film. And I think it's a really hard thing to pull off um, uh, a movie that, that um, is able to sustain that feeling of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. for such a long time. Mm -hmm. what, what were, I, I want to talk about you, but I am curious, what, what movies did you watch? So to give people an idea about as you go see The Invitation, like what movies were you watching as you were thinking about it? I looked at a sort of strain of 70s paranoid thrillers, like 
the parallax view, clute. I even consider the the second version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Philip Kaufman version, kind of in this family of films that repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, yeah. you know, f- just films that sort of are are trafficking in not knowing most of the plot, sort of feeling like you have to arrive at at what's happening. I mean, the plot is watching people struggle to understand what's happening. And um, a lot's kind of given away at the end of the film, those films. It's interesting. I was thinking, um, just as you're saying that, that great moment at the end of Fincher's version of, can't remember a movie right now because I'm so tired, <laughs> um, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Yes, yes. But the, the end of Fincher's version of a Dragon Tattoo, when... Um, that whole speech about knowing when we should protect ourselves from danger but being unable to do it out of some kind of politeness or mm-hmm, something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, yes. And that truth about human nature. I, I was thinking of that yes. as I was watching your Yes, I mean film definitely well. the movie is um investigating the, the dangers of too much courtesy and and not really checking in with your instincts, your animal instincts. We'll come back to it, um, the, the film, because I, I do want to talk about certain technical things, like how mm. you thought about the use of sound, mm. how you thought about informing what's just outside the frame mm-hmm. uh, and all that stuff, uh, because perspective is so important in this movie yep. as, in a way to create tone yes. and create the sense of uh, dread. But I, I, I want to go backwards. And also, I, I want to say you're one of the top television directors, almost impossible to book on a television show because you're so... <laughs> I never, thought I'd get, I never thought I'd get here. It's the fastest uh, sort of um, rise to getting to actually just be working that I've had now that it's started. You I'm mean so, the 20 year rise? The 20 years later? The 20 years later. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's true. I clawed to get like a TV job for years. And now that I have them, I'm, I'm, I feel so thankful because I'm working on such great shows. Well, you did direct my favorite episode of our series, Billions. It and was a great um, time. Which, yeah, episode 10, which is, uh, uh, I don't want to spoil the the show, but episode 10, which takes place around a a funeral. And um, uh, I'm so excited that you're going to direct an episode in season two. But you've also done Man in a High Castle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think your first, was your first thing for our buddies? Was Chicago Fire the first TV show? No, it was Halt and Catch Fire. Right. So two, you've done a couple Halt and Catch Fires. Yes, yes. Do you like directing television? I do. I mean, it's funny. I've lately been thinking about it in, in sort of two different metaphors. It's sort of like wanting to become a language specialist and thinking about all the different languages there are to speak with. And every show has a different language. And I get to sort of understand it and figure out ways to expand or amplify it. I find it's a really interesting challenge, actually. You have to do all of that in an extremely compressed amount of time. So I think it requires a lot of facility. You know, you have to just get good at translating what it is that makes certain shows work. You know, that's kind of an interesting mission for a job, I think. And then I also think about it like as somebody who does want to be making features and continue to make features, but features are such a different kind of marathon. It's sort of like, you know, those cyclists who go to mountaintops and train for six months to like you know, boost the oxygenation yeah, in their blood. Yeah, and then they come I back kind of, down to uh, yeah. uh, sea level and they are yeah. amazing. I yeah. kind of feel like this is the way I keep in shape for the eventual hopeful features Well, in it's my interesting feature. because it also seems like it refi- – like the, um, I understand what you're saying about speaking in that language. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that the, the directors who came in and, and really elevated the material, who were able to make more of their episodes than we could have easily predicted on the page – 
had a specificity of vision uh-huh. so that although they might be using the the tools, the visual language that had been established, their specificity of vision, and I include you in this, pushed the show into a point of view that, mm-hmm. although that is mine, Dave's point of view, the mm-hmm, show for mm-hmm, sure, mm-hmm. but it really, in the episodes where the director made the show better, it's because it's become, becomes a shared point of view. I think that's really true. That and A shared or even you could say like, between the two point of views, you get a sharpened... A third, yeah, sharper... a a, a different thing. ...point of view. And I didn't anticipate that necessarily. I didn't really know... As a a filmmaker, you know, there's this wonderful moment, Karin, where where you chose to put a camera up high, floating as if it's the heavens looking down upon Mm -hmm. our characters. And I guess I'm wondering how you first began to think about telling stories Mm -hmm. in this way. Like, because that choice... Mm-hmm. in the way that you made it isn't just something you came up with on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It's like a lifetime of thinking about right. these things that leads you to go, there's a reason to have this camera feel like it's uh, in the ether. And I know how to do it. And I know that it's not going to look cheesy. And right. I know... When did you first realize you wanted to become a visual storyteller mm-hmm. or a storyteller? Like, wh- where'd you grow up? And then hmm. what was the beginning of that process? Um, I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And the beginning of the process for me at arriving at wanting to be a filmmaker came by having my mother deposit me on a Saturday afternoon at a repertory movie theater in downtown St. Louis called the Tivoli pretty much every weekend. How old were you? 13. And what was your child? Like, were your parents together? They were together, but I just had started to really... Uh, find some kind of sanctuary in movies and some kind of place to to. It's like I almost wanted to say to lose myself, but really what I mean to say is find myself, you know, in the theater of, but in being an audience member. And so, so frequently there was a whole run. I mean, back in the day when there was actually repertory programming, um, this theater would have, you know, would devote an entire weekend to Warren Beatty, multiple weekends. So I'd see Mickey one, I'd see Splendor Parallax, in the Grass. Pal- Parallax I'd view. I'd see Parallax View, I'd see McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I'd, I mean, I'd see Shampoo. I'd see the, the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, like where it's just sort of like movies that couldn't be more different from one another. And some of them, the Parallax View being primary in my memory, but also McCabe and Mrs. Miller, very mysterious films, like a 13-year-old, like just going way over my head. Bonnie and Clyde is even mysterious. Bonnie and Clyde, so mysterious. Yeah, I mean, you can't really understand what's going on no, with him in the, no. when, you know, why he's having a hard time hooking oh, up, like all oh, that stuff. There's so much about it still that it's like, wow, it's so fascinating that this is this like impotence drama. Yeah. And, but as a 13-year-old, there was no way for me to perceive that, but. I perceive the Arthur Penn shootout and the bird flying away at that moment before it starts. Yes. You know, like you, you never perceived, oh, there's an omen. You, you never forget the stuff. stuff. You you never forget, you know, a golf cart crashing oh, into yeah. chairs in, in the parallax view. You you never forget him begging Natalie Wood for sex. Like he's a diseased person. And it's sort of like, what what in, in Splendor in yeah, the Grass? Sure. I mean, so there's stuff in cinema that I think just had this power over me right away, even when so frequently the plots were too sophisticated for me. And it, well, it seems like you recognize the strangeness. You know, that thing Harold Bloom talks yes. about, like the strangeness in great works, which is just like yes. uh, when it seems like that that thing, that unknowable, ineffable yes. strangeness yes. that is in great art. yes. 
hit you somehow. Totally. Even if you couldn't put words to it. Totally. And I think... Would you walk around in a daze after you saw those movies? Oh, my God, totally. And my mom would say, what were they about? And I would say, I don't know, really. <laughs> like, I ultimately... Did, did you have friends? <laughs> it's funny that you even have to ask, isn't it? Um, I, yeah. Well, no, you t- said the thing about getting dropped off alone at the theater. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I was you alone. raised the question. I was I mean, alone. Yes, I was alone. Um, I think I was a bit of a solitary soul. I had a couple of black trench-coated my peeps kind of thing. And we all hung out in like the library or the study lounge. Were you smoking you clove know? cigarettes? Um, I was not. But I, I, I always wanted to be a burnout. Like I always wanted to be in the smoking lounge. Like we had an outdoor smoking lounge yeah. back in the day when you could have a smoking lounge in a high school for the students. Yeah. <laughs> you know, an, a time of other freedoms. I always thought, oh, if only I could graduate to to being that kind of like rogue, you know? But you weren't. I was just too much of a brain, you know? And so I was pretty lonely. I mean, I was very strong-willed. I mean, like, I think I had a strong sense of self, but I was lonely and insecure like the next. Lonely because you couldn't find, you said you had a couple of people that were like your piece, but you couldn't really find like the kindred. Well, you know, it's like we were the only, for a long time, we were the only Japanese family in the in the school system. And then there was maybe like an Indian family. I was going to say, were there any other Asian people? And then, yeah, I mean, it's like there'd be one Indian family and right. then one, you know, it, it just, it, it wasn't um, one Korean family eventually, but it just never felt like, um, I just felt like I was plopped in the middle of white America and in a place where it wasn't actually truly white America. It was this very striated sort of racially tense environment, St. Louis. Um, it's the home of Ferguson. So right. it still remains a kind of crisis point in race relations. Did it feel that way to you? In other words, yes, did you, you were aware of your other, you were aware of otherness and of being oh, yeah. some kind of an outsider just by dint of the fact that you were Japanese? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I was just waiting to get to New York. I mean, d- to me, the second I like walked out of the West 4th station, having said goodbye to my mother, I'm about to start college at NYU. I was like, I'm home. I'm, I, I've found my spiritual home because I see so many different kinds of people in front of me. You know, the idealist in me has to believe that's what the world is. We're going to take a sec here to uh, hear from our sponsor. As a small business owner, you work endless hours to pursue your goals. The sun rises your alarm clock, your lunch hour is eight minutes long. You need employees who work hard too. Mazda has 20 years of experience finding the right people for the right jobs. Mazda builds custom hiring solutions specific to your small business. Visit Mazda.com slash hiring to find employees who work as hard as you and save 25% or more for the limited time. Mazda, find better. Did you identify as, a, as, an, as an artist at that time in the beginning? Or did you start to have, were you, like, were you in a creative writing class? Were yes. you really good at it? Did you know yes. that that was... I was writing poetry, and I think the thing about poetry... That'll make you, well, that'll make you popular. It, well, yeah, yeah, right totally, away, that'll... Totally. It's like a social... It. It's just like social arsenic. But, I mean, for me, it, it, it was the thing of... Um, some poetry is extremely effective, in my opinion, because of its sort of imagistic qualities. And I realized I was trying... I was putting the words to it, and now, as a filmmaker, I'm seeing that that's... The instinct is the same to sort of find the details that no, tell no the story. No question you have an incredibly poetic sense of, like your cinematic sense is a poetic Yeah, I think, sense. I mean, and I mean that like capital P. I don't necessarily mean it like I'm self-aggrandizing so much as just I think that I'm, I'm interested in how details drive the story. You use your story. camera that way. In other words, you'll linger 
yeah. on the odd detail yeah. that becomes uh, revelatory, not necessarily plot revelatory, but thematically r- resonant later. You'll find mm-hmm. that stuff mm-hmm. in the way a poet does, where well, you dr- you're you're kind of catching it as. And and the thing by. that's wonderful about directing both film and TV, and for some reason I'm thinking about Damian Lewis's face right now, is faces do these very poetic things and kind of hold these mysteries and these secrets. And so in the episode we did together, I felt like, you know, there are a lot of moments where on second viewing, hopefully, you you look at Damien's character and you recognize that there's secrets brewing that would drive the story, you know, forward to where it ends up in the episode. But But it's sort of like that's the poetry to me, is seeing those flickers of indecision, uncertainty, regret... Yeah, that he'll never revealed, articulate. You know, meaning revealed as you let it go, uh, like kind of over and o- over. Like you watch it again, yeah. or freeze on it, or yeah. let them let it linger. I mean, that's what the best poetry does, right? It lingers mm-hmm. and forces you back to the page. Yes. two weeks later. Yes, to when return to something. The line or a word turns in your head. You weren't even expecting it to, and then it opens up in, mm-hmm. in a new way. And it's mm-hmm. clear that part of how you're thinking about what you do just from watching your movies. But, oh, that's nice. Thank you. But biographically, you know, I think so many people who come, become working artists or want to had that feeling of alienation mm-hmm. or estrangement that you, that you had when you were young. Right. I hope it's not a requirement, but it feels like it's do certainly... Do you think it is? I don't know. I mean, I had an old creative writing teacher who said, you know, oh, to be great is to be misunderstood if only the reverse were also always true. <laughs> well, well, no, sure. <laughs> and... And, you know, and so I think it's her way of, because she was a poet herself, she was struggling with like, sort of, if I feel misunderstood, is that enough? Does that get me to greatness? You know? Right. But it's the, it's the if then in the other direction <laughs> yeah, yes, is the yes, problem. Yes. But um, you had two parents, but you I had did. this other stuff. I did. And, and I, there's, a, there's a certain kind of emotional makeup to, to the Midwestern farmer, farmer's daughter, you know, sort of agricultural role. Your parents farmers? My mom's family was. And then my dad is from Japan and and he comes from like the wintry sort of northernmost island of Hokkaido. And it's, I think the Japanese culture, kind of rural Japanese culture, rural American Midwestern culture, they're suited toward one another in that there's this sort of emotional reserved quality. And I don't know. I think I was like this like like bleeding feeling kid all the time, you know? I think movies became the place that I could sort of organize those feelings because I was I had a harder time understanding them sort of in my family life for whatever reason. Sure. You know? That that makes a lot. I mean, that's what people do. They throw they throw themselves into the movies or art hits them in a certain way and they somehow you felt connected to these filmmakers, right? You, oh, to totally. To the stories they were telling. You were very alive when you were in the movie theater. Most alive. You felt understood, even though yes. they couldn't understand you. Yes. But you felt understood. Yes, yes. Or there's something, too, about just like the act of looking and the act of seeing. It allows me to feel seen. It's paradoxical. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but... No, it's totally true. I mean, when I think about... I, like, I didn't have an art house theater near me growing up. Mm. but I loved the movies, but mm-hmm. it was... I loved the movies... But I never had the sense of I want to make movies or this is my special Mm -hmm. connection. Like music did a lot of that for me. But then when I was 19, I saw She's Gotta Have It in Raising Arizona, like right one after that came out the same year. Yeah. 
And suddenly there was a language. Mm-hmm. I mean, just suddenly there was a language yeah. uh, that was entirely different. Yeah. Um, and it had to do with how Spike wrote, really, and how Joel and Ethan wrote. Because for me, the, the thing that explodes first is when language uh, appears. But I do remember that sense of not of being less lonely. Yes. And not that I was so, but I remember feeling yeah. like there's something in the world. Yes. I can take refuge in this. As ex- turned on by a certain turn of phrase. Yeah. And then seeing Mamet, you know, and it was just like, oh my God, this right. exists. So that happened to you at a much younger It did, but, but, but I think it was that at that like, because you were asking about sort of visual storytelling, I think that was the stuff that hit me first. It was sort of like the words were going over my right. head. Because I, I wasn't really, I hadn't learned, the, I literally hadn't learned our language, the English language quite as well to understand, you know, like you watch a movie like The Parallax View that seemed, what what does it have, 50 sentences in it? I mean, right. it's a very spare movie. I watched it recently too. I mean, yeah. it's just, now I look at it and I just think like, how the fuck did this movie get made? I mean, it just, it's so I know, bold. but there's also something quaint about it now that's totally. very just terrifying to me. Oh, it's, totally. It, it's like it's already happened. I, yeah. It's, We're, we've to, moved so beyond it. To me, they're like naivete and quaintness. Uh, the naivete creates a kind of quaintness as you're watching it. Yes. Which is like, it's a great, listen, it's it's um, a flawed movie, but really, really, really oh, yeah, worth yeah. seeing. Oh, yeah. But it's an amazing statement on our times that it's totally. not, it's not mind-blowing in this. There's an inevitability when you watch it now. Absolutely. That could not have been there when you watched that movie Absolutely. when it first came out. But also formally, I mean, I would say this of a lot of his films, formally, it was pretty daring. I think now we would say it was daring because... I don't know now if we get the opportunity to just hang on big wide shots and just sort of make a meal out of it. Well, he and and the amazing also I would say uh, because he puts you in his point of view so strongly. Yeah. You are left there are only one or two moments when he cuts to the sheriffs. There are only a couple of moments where you understand beyond his what yeah, he understands. You understand what's actually happening. But that almost never happens totally. in that movie. Totally. Totally. Which obviously yeah. is why it was a reference for you. Yes. Uh, yes. In the invitation. Yes. Uh, which you break even fewer times. I think only through their you learn the stuff when right. they take certain. Right. I don't, again, I want to give it away. Um, <laughs> but so you're you're there and you're a, a kid and you're starting to think about this. Were there expectations uh, on you that you would live? A, you obviously you said a brain. You were very smart. You did well in school. You I could did. have done lots of. You could have made lots of choices. I could have. Were they comfortable when you picked New York and, and when you said, or did you tell anyone I mean, you wanted to make films? I, I think the notion of film school to my parents, I, I think it was literally mortifying. I mean, I, I really think it was about as far afield for them. And in retrospect now, understandably, because the notion of going to film school, it wasn't like as sort of um, pedestrian as it is now. There are now too many film schools and probably too many film students. But It then, was still exotic. Yeah, it was pretty exotic, I think. And 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 also, you know, I just think this my parents... This was in the late 80s, right? Yeah. Right. And I think my parents were just like, what's, where's the future there? And I was just like, the future is in... The future is now. Movies are all I care about. I mean, I just sort of had descended into this place And where, who were by then your favorite filmmakers? Wow. Uh, like, who were... Were there women that you looked at? Yes. Who and it's the, funny because I'm thinking about, like, discovering, like, um, Agnes Varda in the theaters and discovering all of those early indie films, like... Bill Sherwood's Parting Glances and John Sayles' Brother from Another Planet. Yeah. And, you know, just movies where it was sort of like, huh, 
this is happening out there. I mean, Stranger Than Paradise. I, was say Jarmusch was, I mean, when Jarmusch you see Stranger making, Than Paradise yeah. as an eighteen-year-old, it's sort of like okay, still mind-blowing that movie. I, by the yeah, way, yeah, like okay, this exists. This feels very different, but somehow more for me than for almost anybody else. You, you know, somehow felt so youthful, so fresh that filmmaking, and still does. So I think. Finding those kind of movies made me think, and 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 you know what? I I think I saw she's got to have at the same exact time. It was like that feeling of like, there's something out there. It's like cooking, and I yeah, want to get weird. in that kitchen. It's weird that one because like the Coen Brothers movie had a level of accomplishment to it that it, there was yeah. an impossibility. Raising Arizona, yes, yes. I mean, just even that first shot up the ladder totally, and then the totally. thing it was Visually, like, it's so crazy. How is and, anyone right, gonna? It's right. unattainable. It's, right. It's um amazing. You feel like. There's something, I mean, by the way, exactly how I still think of Joel and Ethan. It's yeah. like a totally unattainable level right, of right. perfection. Spike's movie, because he made it for nothing. Yes. Um, because there was that, it was black and white. Yes. Except for the one sequence in color. There was something approachable. Mm-hmm. Slightly mm-hmm. approachable, I right. guess. Sure. And so you, you came knowing, did you think you were going to write and direct? Was that your idea? Well, how did you get Well, that's interesting, because I didn't know exactly. I knew, I had this idea I wanted to be a director. And to be honest, a lot of that came from you know, my sophomore year or junior year of high school and and basically within a year seeing Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Ridgemont High and seeing Martha Coolidge's Valley Girl, I, I, I did kind of hook into this idea that there are stories out there that I find appealing, but so do, you know, the random boys and girls next to me, like that have a kind of universality and women make them. For some reason, I thought women had to make niche films. I mean, the, you know, I'm watching Agnes Varda movies. So at that point, I didn't have a lot of signposts when it came to, to women in film. Right. But there were you know, just few. The, yeah, there just weren't that many. And so to see those two movies, that propelled me, I think, into thinking, yes, I can do this. And so they were the directors of those movies. And so when I went to NYU, I kind of pretty quickly found that that's the thing I wanted to do. You know, I just looked up, there have been this, I'm glad you brought up looking at women who did this and thinking mm-hmm. you could do it because, you know, there's been this spate of articles recently, yes. um, uh, useful articles, important articles about the challenges of having a career as yeah. a woman director. And there's this idea that men uh, get, white men get many more shots at it. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about, you know, you said Amy Herkeling's Fast Times. And of course, um, most people just say Cameron Crowe's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Because, Which is so funny. Right. But she directed the movie. Uh, 100%. She sure did. She's the director. She directed the uh, fuck out of that yeah, movie. Yeah, she sure did. And <laughs> No, and I'm sure Cameron would say that. Yes, yes. But, you know, Cameron, who is a legendary director and considered one of the all-time mm-hmm. greats, and I mean, he's made some of my just personal favorite mm-hmm. movies, but he had some giant stiffs. Oh, yeah. And kept working and working. Oh, yeah. And Heckerling, like, made a couple of huge movies. And you just look at the IMDb mm-hmm. and you I feel like... I mean, it's like, hard to argue with Clueless, you right. know? I, I mean, mean, just gigantic. And look who's talking. Yeah. I mean, you go Fast Times, look who's talking, and Clueless. But then it doesn't really seem like she got a lot of movies made. And maybe she had one or two movies that didn't that didn't work. Right. But I do... But that, th- but but that should it, be a you, giant career. Right. When you look at that, so I'm asking, as a woman, as a, uh, a female director, when you look at that... Yeah. You know, we could think about 25 guys who, if they directed two movies that were as big as Clueless and Fast Times, would be working for 30 years. I mean, Absolutely. how do you process that? Well, it's, I feel lucky that it's taken me so long to process it. Because what do you mean? it's, 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 um, 
it's not that I'm like Marjorie Morningstar or anything, but I for a oh, long one of my favorite books. I, I I've always tried to be kind of I don't know. I want to say like open to the good. As dark as my sort of personal sensibility about the world is, I've always hoped that I could temper that with a sense of optimism that like humanity wins. But it's been interesting over these past several years of my career, really seeing certain filmmakers who were sort of my contemporaries, or I want to say kind of at my level when it came to like making indies. But then they they make an indie that has a, makes a splash, but then doesn't hit at the box office, which is, for instance, my situation with Girl Fight. As proud as I am of that of that film, it, it commercially did not quote perform. And then it took me another four years to get a movie made. But that movie was like, you know, critically beloved. Um, Girl Fight. Girl Fight. And, and won a, Sundance. And won it? the director's prize and won, shared the grand prize right. with Kenny Lonergan and with You Can Count On Me. And, you know, so I felt like there's an opportunity here to, like, move fast and make another movie. And I, I, it, it just didn't happen. And so then when did I... Did you have a script you wanted to make? I did. I did. And it just, it didn't... But did it occur to you this is not happening because I'm a woman? It didn't. I was like, okay, I guess I'm really interested in very difficult subject matter. Maybe that's the problem. And then I made a couple of studio movies that also did not perform. And one was had been more sort of interfered with by the studio than the other. But still both... I think suffered suffered the sort of the 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 worst indignities that can occur when making studio films, which is either that they're doomed from the start for a bunch of reasons, which was Eon Flux, or they're sort of misunderstood by the marketing team, and then that was Jennifer's, Jennifer's body. body. And so that's okay, but I I think it's interesting that I have felt now that I'm at my fourth film, in which I made a very conscious decision to go to a back to a like tiny budget. I had to claw to, the, to get to the tiny budget. It did not come together quickly. It did not come together easily. And I am sort of looking at my contemporaries and seeing the opportunities they get to invent themselves and reinvent themselves and, and fail and get back up on their feet and, and sometimes fail again and sometimes succeed. And to me, that feels like the way a lot of film careers probably need to work because it's it's a very, very narrow little sort of sliver of the window you're going for to make a really good movie. Yes. It's very hard. So I get it when movies don't work. I'm not one of those people who like gets on the internet and like slams other people's movies because it's so hard, I I think, personally. I have a lot of like mercy for for the movie making process. At any stage, the thing can get inexorably (laughs) ruined. (laughs) Yes, and inexorably ruined. you don't, you, you might not catch why until much. Totally. Later, the one scene that just shouldn't be there, but the three other things um, all go into, so you can't remove it, or yeah. it, it somehow that scene convinced everybody that um, X was going to work. Yes, and then that scene doesn't doesn't, doesn't work. Work, and now you don't have X in the movie. I mean, yes. that's for sure. Yes, there are tripwires every place. And 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 part of being, I think, an artist is that you're not out there looking for tripwires. You're actually kind of looking for a pure expression and hopefully there there's there's a lot that goes into sort of making stories work but i want to just say one uh, because when you say you're not out there looking for tripwires that's true but your process is deliberate and focused so you are stress testing i mean i'm talking about your specific process having witnessed it 
is not casual and not slapdash. Like you no. are questioning and totally trying to not look for tripwires in that like booby trust, but you are right. looking at truth of the moment, narrative flow, totally character progression. I mean, we you I've seen you focused on that. Yes, stuff yes. Intently. I'm, but I think that to me is the art itself. That's yes. the process. Yes. But I guess what I'm talking about is like I think a lot of times the tripwires you're just. Dis- describing are things that some of them are completely out of your control. Some of them you never see see coming and some of them you could see coming and focus on, but then that takes your your time away from the process of focusing on the storytelling. And so that's part of it too that I think can get well, there you're talking about kind of interference, right? You're talking yeah, or about just the personalities that it's sort of like, yeah. God, I wish I had, I wish I'd understood that better. That's what's so never, just constantly amazing about Soderbergh is mm-hmm. that he is able to like whatever those challenges are, yeah, absorb or dodge, able to absorb or, and dodge, yeah, and, um, never lose faith that he can somehow find a way to solve them, yeah. But it is like you, you stand near that and you just go like that facility years and years and years of solving them. And part of that is he's gotten to make a hundred movies. Yeah. You've gotten to make four movies. I know. And so believe I, me, that that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. Like, yeah, I I totally believe that I bring my life as part of my pro to to the process. But isn't <laughs> if you're gonna be a marathoner, don't you have to run? Like so so for me, it's hard because I admire Robert Brisson for making whatever a total of eight movies, or but I bet you I want to make more than that. But yeah, you look at Godard. Yeah, and he made you know third forty. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Fassbender made like you know I can't even count. I think it was like forty movies, and then he died at thirty-seven. I mean, it's insane to think about. You know, some people have these incredible bodies of work, and I have to say, yes, of course, I want a body of work. Well, I think that is part of what television gives you, right? Yes, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I was thinking about like um, you do bring to your movies and to the TV thing this tremendous specificity of tone, and then you do, you know, I, you willingly collaborate. And you don't hold on too tight. Like, how is that? How you work when you're making movies too? Mm. With if there's a writer and with the actors, I mean, do you think that that skill set? I guess some people, I, I think in the old days, were scared if they directed TV, they would lose that thing that made them the director, mm-hmm. the authority. Um, though it doesn't say, you walk on a set with a tremendous sense of personal authority, mm-hmm. but never, I don't think, with like a, hey, I am the, you know, the only authority. I really believe there's a way to be a director where the strength comes in, in one's willingness to hear good ideas. I, I do believe that. I, I think sometimes the there's a kind of Hollywood director who I suspect is extremely successful who listens to everything and takes every idea as seriously as the last one. And that seems like a mistake to me. <laughs> I think it's really important to kind of have your boundaries. I wonder if that person can still work. I believe that there were systems in which that kind of person could work in the past. Right, but I'm then not maybe sure without the big producers, more... like when Bruckheimer and Weintraub and yes. a bunch of those producers were making so many movies a year, mm-hmm. and they were really the director. Right, right, right. It's different. I think. I wonder yeah. if that's the case now. It, it, you might be right. I mean, I for me, I just believe that I'm not somebody who wants to like command respect by being an autocrat. Like I, that actually doesn't interest me. 
I do want to share a lot of ideas and ask everybody to synthesize those ideas and come back to me with their best work. Yeah. Like that's sort of what I think is exciting. I mean, is, we're talking is, to department heads, not just actors. Yes. Because you don't want actors to do a lot of synthesizing. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, though. It's 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 like having just done this this movie, The Invitation. I mean, it was pretty fascinating. Twelve actors in a room pretty much every day. And, and so I felt like, all right, I could either sort of shut down as a way to just sort of like barrel through the day or I could find – find some frequency where there's an open channel for me to hear everybody, to take it in, and to keep moving forward, to not get bogged down, but really hear people, like listen. And um, I find it really exciting, actually, to be um, not coming at it from a place of like who's in charge, because I, I, I mean, I don't mean for this to sound, uh, I, I'm starting to recognize I already am in charge. <laughs> if right. that makes sense, you know? So it's sort of like, I don't need to throw that around, well, if being, that makes sense. Yeah, because being comfortable in your skin is the whole thing. Yes. But it's taken a while to get there. Well, that's the journey. I mean, for all of us. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. to get to the place where you're just, all right, you know, I've prepared. Yeah. I'm here now. Yes. I'm going to try my best to solve these problems with you. Yes. I don't have all the answers. And And you know what's interesting? What you're describing, I feel like, is the special skill set a television director needs to bring, which is I've had my seven days or my eight days to prepare this. That's all they were given. That's all that was given to me. And so it really is about like being very present. I I mean, you hear about like the journeyman TV directors who sort of I guess sleep through the job or I I don't know how it I don't know how I don't know how it can become rote, but I guess for some it can be. To me, it's like, I think what's so fascinating is it actually, you don't get as much time to prepare as you would on a feature. You're still telling an hour of story. I mean, you really you have, have to be hyper present. You have to be so present, so prepared, Especially so willing. Especially if you're premium cable or, or and oh. where you're trying to tell a certain kind of story. Oh. And each episode is like a big indie movie. Absolutely. And yet you have eight days to shoot it or nine days. I mean. We had 10. You've got 10 to shoot that's ours. Right. That's right. But yes, it's true. That's hard. Like that's a lot of you know that. So the idea that somehow TV is um, sort of not going to keep you fit creatively is ridiculous. It keeps you really fit because you have to do that work. That is the job. Is is just showing up so present. No, and that's what you look for when you're us and you're talking to directors. Obviously, I've been friends with your husband, for Phil. Hey, who's a great screenwriter along with his partner Matt Manfredi mm-hmm. for a long time. You and I had met just a couple of times and spoken. And so I remember um, calling an, another friend of ours to say, I know everyone loves Karen as a person, and I loved uh, Girl Fight, but, you know, will she be able to come and do TV? And my mm-hmm. friend said, she's the best director we had in our show. Derek Hass said, you know, she was an incredible Aww, director so nice on hear. our show. And she was, he said all that stuff, like totally prepared, focused, collaborative. It right. was so great to hear. Right. And then we spoke to you when you were so uh, alive. And, and I would say it was our, in North Star and hiring directors was this sense that they wouldn't consider it slumming, that they would be oh considerate. God. Like yeah. um, they really wanted to do this form of storytelling. Absolutely. To, but to you, someone who grew up in an art house cinema, was that a hard adjustment like, I guess my question is, as you've had to uh-huh. make certain kinds of compromises, make certain kinds of reframing what it is that you do as a storyteller, how have you thought about it? Well, I guess, I mean, 
for some reason, what you're talking about makes me think about how much as a kid and into my early adolescence, I loved soaps. And I loved soaps for the story. I, n- I didn't love soaps for the storytelling, like right. the way it was presented. But I loved all the crazy twists and turns. And I see episodic television at an interesting new moment that for me, I connect with Fassbender's Berlin Alexanderplatz or Lars von Trier's The Kingdom, where very serious filmmakers now are able to tell a story that's very rich and kind of has a real tapestry that you couldn't ever tackle in a feature film. And so to be even an installment in that kind of storytelling to me is a very it's like a great gig i mean well i just love that that's how you think about it and it's interesting i uh uh it seems like there is uh, obviously like an incredible stick-to-itiveness with you because i know it took you 10 years to get girl fight made Mm -hmm. but also an adaptability it seems like where you're willing to figure out how to adapt to how things Mm -hmm. change yeah i'm trying i mean and i feel like really really lucky that television has become as interesting as it is at this moment because I feel like I'm working on the best shows on TV. And in doing that, I'm working on some of the best storytelling out there. What did you find in the world of TV that it was so much more accepting, though, of a woman and a Japanese woman Mm -hmm. to come in and do this? Because you are really in demand as a television. I mean, you're working as much. You can work as much as you want on premium television now. Thank you. Um, no, it's clear. I mean, it's just obvious that that's I the mean, case. I mean, I'd have so, to give a shout out to Melissa Bernstein, who, you know, was one of the core producers on Breaking Bad. And when she started Halt and Catch Fire, she met with me and just liked me. And I just said, I know I can do it. And she said, you know what? We we need somebody for our third episode of our first season. Can you Can you do this? And I said, yes. She just gave me the break. And I think for both of us, we just knew it went really well. And I had a great time. I loved everybody. I've been asked back. You know, I'm going back for my third season. Right. But I think it just takes that one time where you show up, you're prepared, you listen a lot, you ask particular and pointed questions about tone, because that's so important, particularly at the beginning of a show. Yes. And you do your best to bring in the best possible episode that you could. What, it sounds like you, you think through these things in a pretty deep way, in a, quite a deep way. I'm wondering, like, what's your process of checking in with yourself of, mm. like, what do you, how do question. you do it? It's interesting. I've had the opportunity recently. I feel like moments of great failure and moments of relative success allow for those moments of checking in. And I, for better or for worse, have experienced both things in yeah. abundance and that's that's when it's like when things get tough and challenging or when things seem to open up and all of a sudden there's tons of opportunity in front of me that's when i have to do the check in because both times require a sense of like what do i really want what's actually important here what's actually important and a lot of times i, I don't even think about movies i think about I mean, this is going to sound maybe kind of crazy, but like, how long do I want to live and how healthy do I want to be when I die? Like, right. do I want to be a, 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 a crotchety 95-year-old complaining about my knees or I mean, do I want to be a funny 95-year-old? You would be a funny 95-year-old, well, You know, but I'm, I'm at that age now where I actually am willing to accept that I'm going to die. And I want to now kind of like stop fucking around and make only the work I want to make if I have the privilege to do that. And I feel like 
that's the big opportunity in front of me and actually has been in front of me for a long time. And I've had a life where I could really make a lot of my own choices, even when those choices sort of spiraled or got away from me. They always started as mine. I was never forced into anything. And that's a great thing to be able to say. Yes. So now I just want to keep doing that in this like mindful way. And for me, I'm recognizing now that I'm here with another basically almost full year of work booked up, I need open space where I don't have anything in front of me. And I'm curious how you respond to this just because I think about what a television season is and you guys don't get that at all. I just want to find ways to make space for my brain to, to feel like open to anything. And if you work too much, I find that's really hard space to make. Like, how do you do it? Yeah. I'm asking you. No, I know. <laughs> what are your secrets? It's you know? really hard. I try to build, I mean, the, the simple answer, there are two answers. One is I, I wish we had more time. The opportunity to do the show was so great. Mm-hmm. To have made a show that people responded to mm-hmm. this well has been incredible. Sure. So, of course, we want to get right back to making the next season of it. Right. I build into my day, I do morning pages every day, and I meditate twice a day. Mm-hmm. So that at least I have How moments. How long do you meditate? 20 minutes twice wow. a day. So that at least I have moments. And sometimes during the season, the second meditation slides. Yeah, sure. Which really, it's much better if I do it twice a day. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But at least I try to build in these little moments. Um, right. Because the meditation, I guess, like fills a certain thing. And then the morning pages, you release it. And it's hard yeah. to like not be honest with yourself when you're doing morning pages every day. You you end up telling yourself the truth. And when I say morning pages, I'm talking about the way Julia Cameron describes them in the artist mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. Three freehand long, you know, mm-hmm. free longhand pages, free mm-hmm. writing in the morning. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that when you have more time, more restorative time, mm-hmm. it pays dividends. Your, your imagination starts to fire in a different way. And in a way that yes. you even forget, you only recognize, and like as it's happening, you recognize, oh, this has happened to me before. Mm-hmm. But, but you try it's very hard to kind of create the state in which that happens so you try tricks meditating and yes. morning pages or methods they're not really tricks they're tools right, or right, they're techniques right, right, right. or you know at a certain point the adrenaline kicks in that said I love reading fiction and I read mm-hmm. a little less fiction now right um, like you said Kingdom by Von Trier and I realize that's a Von Trier movie I've never seen mm-hmm. well it's, most, you know and it's a series it's like 10 hours long right? most times in my life I would now go uh, make a plan and go watch those 10 hours. Yeah. And I'll write it down now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it'll be staring at me on my computer. For a year. For a long time. Yeah. And that's like you probably do. I love the process of getting law. You know, I'd watch that movie and it would remind me of some other thing oh. and I would go read three things about it. Oh, yeah. And I'd talk to three critic friends and then I would be off to these other movies and I would read two books. And then, you know, you're lost in that swirl. Yeah. That's why we became what we became. I mean, and it's that funny. disappears. Yeah. I mean, because thinking about like the years before I made my first feature and my life was just really putting, you know, really hand to mouth babysitting. Where were you living? Here in New York. And who you were working for a filmmaker, I was working for John Sayles. And... You were babysitting? Eventually. Oh, yeah. I mean, I started babysitting, then I became John's assistant for about three years. This is right out of NYU? Uh, Yes. And 
I took all kinds of odd jobs. John like sort of kicked me out the door and was like, please make your movie. Like, I can't stand he this He had any read longer. Girl Fight at that yes, point? Yes, yes. And he'd given me fantastic notes and helped me really get the script together. And then he, he after a couple years, was like, I can't stand this. Go out, make your movie, focus on this. And in that time, I still had to live. So I was doing all kinds. I mean, I counted $2,000 worth of change as a job once, one day, and got paid in like, you know, pot and foreign currency. Um, you know, that was the, you know, you could be wild and young. I saw a movie every day. Back then, they would pay you in like a giant amount of horrible quality pot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it exactly, just like a exactly. big bale of just right, shitty pot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah. I, one of the perks of that kind of desperate freedom was seeing a movie every day, living in a town where, you know, at least early in my days here, there was the Soho Thalia, there was the Uptown Thalia, there was Film Forum, there was Anthology Film Archives, there was, you know, and these a lot, some of these places still exist. There was Lincoln Center, there was MoMA. And that's just like a playground to just be watching movies. And absorbing, absorbing, absorbing so much art. Not even with like a point, not to a specific point, just to do it. Just to do it. Because you loved it. Just to love it and be in that environment again and again. You know, I felt like this is my training. Yeah, I went to film school, but this is my training is like walking to these theaters because I just would rather like save the pennies, you know? How did you finally make the decision like, um, okay, no more, I'm going to go get Girl Fight made? Like... What happened that finally made it crescendo for you where there was no more chance of not making it, like you had to go do it? I think I probably made that decision when John kicked me out, you know, and said, I demand that you focus on this full time. But it still was years of it coming together and falling apart. I mean, that's the thing about the indie well, that's about that's any movie. A lot of times, it's almost any movie. But also, indie, you needed more money to make that movie than you would need to make it now, probably. Totally, I needed a million dollars, right? And that and was now, a lot of money. Then you, now you can make that movie for a hundred thousand. Yeah, it's possible. It's true. It's possible. And so then I, I had to really, I mean, so much would come together and fall apart on that movie. And so that how'd you was keep yourself? Standard. So how'd you keep going? Like what? What? I swear to God, it was like. Were you I was, alone then? Did you, were you? I lived in a communal household. In Brooklyn, in Fort Greene, we shared a, a literal five-story house, six people, all of us artists and struggling. You had no family here. I lived with my sister. She was one of my roommates. And I felt like we were a family of sorts. That kept us alive all spiritually. As you got the movie made, were those people, did they stay supportive? Oh, my God. They're some of my oldest, dearest oh, friends. Great. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing to have people that you feel like you'll be old and crotchety and complaining about your knees and still enjoy each other's company. If complaining about your knees is what makes you crotchety, I'm crotchety now. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, but that's I'm what I'm already, saying. I mean, that's I'm just, I'm, I'm 49 I, and I'm, I'm, I'm crotchety now I'm trying to reverse engineer this. I, I'm trying to, I'm complaining a lot about my knees too. And so I want to be 95 and not be complaining about my knees. You're going to get through it now? Yeah, 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 exactly. I want to improve once, it now. I, unfortunately, <laughs> like you're a very smart person, but I think I you have to, might have to accept that I know, once I the know. knees start hurting, know, it usually doesn't go in another direction. I know, it's so true. It's so true. But this is my optimism that we've been talking Okay, that's great. So then you, so you were there, and and when when the disappointments would happen, like how did you tell yourself this thing is good? Like how did you know? Because right, you ended up making this great movie by all. I mean, nobody who sees that movie isn't blown away by her performance and by mm, the story and the whole thing, right? And you launched this huge movie star's career and all that stuff. 
I mean, you must feel like you have a little tiny piece of that. Like, how have you not directed a Fast and Furious movie? You I should. I haven't been asked, and should, I haven't really wanted to. You should do one, though. I mean, that'd be great for you. <laughs> just for the fun. The one, let's just see the one oh, you'd make. Oh, yeah, exactly. That would uh, be the one that just, they're like, we're shelving it. Yeah, but clearly, <laughs> but clearly um, now when one looks back, it's like, well, obviously that was going to be great. But when people were saying no or the money would fall apart, how did you keep yourself moving forward? Like, how, how did you know it was good? See, I, I honestly, when you ask the question, I, I'm, I'm sort of baffled because I don't have the answer. I, I really think I wasn't thinking in those terms. And in terms of like, oh, you know, obviously you could look at it now and say it's good. I don't know if even, I, nothing was obvious to me. I was willfully pretty, I'm still so cut off from like the way things were. I don't, I don't do Twitter. I don't do Facebook. I don't, there's so much about the world I just like shut out. I don't know what that makes me, but I was well, similar then. It doesn't, I mean, it seems like you make a lot of choices in a way based on what will serve the muse or whatever the creative or, spirit yeah, is. Or just, or, like, or my sanity. I, I don't, you know, like the muse is like the, 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 the icing on the cake for me. But I think in a way, a quieter, less anxious mind is always now what I'm going for. And it's a, it's a lot of work to ge- even get that, frankly. Well, yeah, quiet mind and knees that move like a four-year-old's. <laughs> exactly. No clicks. Exactly. Exactly. Get you from place to Those place. Snaps. You don't even notice you have them. I know. It's like you when did I become an old branch, noticed. you know? It's like I just hear these like snapping, popping sounds and Phil is always just like, were those your knees? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, babe. Well, <laughs> it's funny, you know, there's that line. What's the line in your movie about pain being optional? Yes. But I was thinking of that Murakami line, which is, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And hmm. in a way, when, when I, mm. I hear, hear your resi- the, the way in which you are and have been resilient, it makes me think that somehow that's an, an ingrained idea for you somehow. Like you, the rejections come, so then, but you somehow have to just... Yeah, and um, this idea that's come to me lately in adulthood which I would not have known when I was making Girl Fight, and which I think it's hard in a way to articulate when you're younger because it's, it's, it's like you're still forming yourself. And I hope I'm always forming myself. But there's something about this notion of vulnerability. I thought I had to be stronger, that not being vulnerable was what being stronger was. And now I realize being vulnerable is my version of being stronger, and, and if I can accept that and kind of lean into that in a way where I feel like I'm not afraid of the fact that I'm afraid sometimes, that I'm insecure, that I'm sort of a wreck, and there's a lot of noise in my head, if I can just accept that that's what I am and that's like my animal self, I kind of feel a lot better. Like I've just gotten past something. If I can just sort of accept, like, my terrible fragility. Do you know what I mean? Like, that that somehow makes me now feel like, okay, that's what strength is for me. That's how I'm going to grow. And so before, I think I was shutting out, shutting out. And now I'm trying to, like, take stuff in and kind of say, like, okay, I got to sit with this. And then I've got to move on. I think that's brilliant. My terrible fragility, which I think was a B-side on Joni Mitchell's (laughs) third album, 
Uh, actually, it was a beautiful number in a minor key. Oh, Joni, uh, Joni, Joni. Uh, right? <laughs> but, uh, Karin, thanks for doing that. That was beautiful what you said. Thank um, you. Your whole journey is so inspiring. And it's so great that um, you have this movie out now that's being received incredibly well and that people are going to see. Thank you. I, I know, I'm you, excited. Folks can see it on their televisions too, right? Yeah, it's, it's on VOD on and it's in theaters. And we just found Ooh. out we got extended at the Arclight and the IFC oh, and awesome. in all these other cities. Yeah, so it's doing it's, great. It's really a movie you should get out and see, um, but you should see it any way that you can. Yes. Written by the great Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, directed by Karin Kusama, featuring uh, an incredible cast of 12 actors that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not going to name uh, all hmm. of them. But it's really worth seeing. And anytime you see Karin's name... Associated with a television show, go watch that too because you can mm-hmm. be sure that the work uh, is going to be uh, quality. Karn, thanks for doing this. I'm uh, so glad that I'm going to see you in the not too distant future uh, on episode 11. Of Me Billions. too. Me too. Talk soon. Hey, so everybody. Much. Thanks for listening. You can't find Karn on social media. <laughs> I guess you can tweet at Phil. Phil is on, her <laughs> husband is on Twitter. He's like Phil Carley or something on Maybe Phil Carley, yeah. On Twitter, I think. Yeah. Phil Hay. You can find him on there, and you can tweet at me, at Brian Koppelman. I'll see you next time on The Moment.